good morning. Hope everybody is doing well. Want to welcome those of you who may be joining us online or from one of our campuses. We may be in a bunch of different places, but we are all one big Seacoast family. I'm thankful for that this morning. Let me, let me start by asking you guys a question. How many of you have ever gotten a trophy in your life or maybe a medal or a ribbon, some type of award? Show of hands here at the campuses. So most of us, some type of award that recognized your effort, right? So our kids were no different. Uh, Matthew and Emma got trophies as they were growing up. There were soccer trophies and swimming trophies. I think there were even some reading trophies, some random ones like that. But there have been a couple that have stood out over the years. When Matthew was in high school, he was super involved. He was the uh, student body president. He played varsity soccer. He but he was also on the debate team. That was new to me. I never didn't know debate. Didn't it just wasn't my thing. And so he he got involved in debate, and he actually became quite good at it. He was nationally ranked by the time it was all done. But before he was a nationally ranked debate champion, he was just a normal debate kid who was kind of working his way up through uh, local debate competitions. How many of you know this, by the way? It, it is difficult raising teenagers. Anybody got a testimony of that? We know this because we were teenagers and we were difficult, right? It's not at all fair to raise a nationally ranked debate champion as a teenager. Like he's literally been trained to persuade you to his point of view and he's better at it. It's just not a fair fight at all. And so before he became nationally ranked, he worked his way through these local competitions and uh, one of them stood out to me. You know, he he, he would win trophies, and they would, the event that he competed in was called Public Forum. There are a bunch of different debate categories. His was Public Forum. So the, the trophies would th say things like, first place, Public Forum, second place, Public Forum. But then there was this one trophy from this obscure competition. I don't even remember the high school that it was held in. And it was sponsored, of all things, by like a heating and air company. It's just like shady to begin with. Anyway, this competition happens, and he does pretty well. He gets third place. And so he gets a trophy, third place, public forum. At least that's what was intended to have been put on the trophy. But that's not what was put on the trophy. You can't see it, so I'm going to show you a picture of it. It was supposed to say third place, public forum. That's not public. It's missing a letter. It's a very different word. That's not a competition we would have let our teenager compete in. It's not a competition any of you should ever compete in. Compete in. It's, I don't know what that is. But that's, you know, fast, let's fast forward. Get away from that one. That's not what you came to church for. Fast forward a few years later, and Emma was in her senior year of high school. And she graduated during 2020. That was in the height of the pandemic when kids weren't in school. They didn't have proms, no spring breaks, barely had graduations. And we found out towards the end of the year that she had been nominated for an award by her teachers and classmates. And it was a big deal. And because of the whole social distancing thing, the, the school called us and said they wanted to bring a motorcade by the house, the principal along with the police. And normally when you get the call, like the principal and the cops are coming to your house, it's not a good thing. But in this case, it was a really great thing. And so uh, they told us like, that we want to do this, but you got to keep it a secret. So that was our job was to keep it a secret. And, but some of her friends found out that she was getting this award and they wanted to be part of it. So they were actually hiding out in the bushes when all this was going down. She had been nominated 
for the Spirit of Wando Award, which was the name of her high school, and apparently that's a really big deal. And so uh, her friends found out they wanted to be part of it. We told her we were just having a small graduation party of a few family, a few friends, and then there were a pile of other people hiding in the bushes she didn't know about. And so after a while, we start hearing the sirens and the horns, and as they got louder and louder, Emma started wondering what was going on. So she went to the front door, opened the door, went out on the porch, and she sees this. She sees the police cars coming down the street. And then she sees other cars with her principal and her coaches and her teachers. And then her classmates jump out from behind the bushes, and she realizes all of this was for her. I didn't tell you, but our crazy Seacoast family wanted to be part of it too. And so they decide to be part of the motorcade, but they don't get in line with the motorcade. They come from the opposite side of the street, creating the world's loudest and most epic traffic jam. It was ridiculous. The cops are looking at us like, who are these people? And we're looking at them like, we have no idea. We don't know them. We think they're from maybe a Baptist church or something. We don't know. But it was a whole big thing. A a block party ensued. The neighbors came out. They wanted to be part of the celebration. Here's some pictures of it. There's the principal giving a speech. And then there's some other people that were involved, friends and family. There's one of Dana's friends who kept her cheerleading outfit from when she was at Wando years ago and decided to rock it hanging out of her friend's sunroof. It was a whole big thing to honor Emma. The purpose was just that. They wanted to honor the character that they saw in Emma. You see, over her high school career, she had demonstrated some things on the outside that they knew came from the character on the inside. On the outside, what they saw were things like kindness and a willingness to work hard and a willingness to help others and make a difference. But they knew that those outward behaviors came from her inner character. And so for Matthew and Emma, and probably for you, the trophies or the awards that you've gotten throughout your life, they probably were for the same thing. They wanted to honor some outward behavior that they knew came from something deeper within you. And that's what I want to talk about today. Today, we're going to kick off a brand new series about a short book in the New Testament called Titus. And we're calling the series When Faith and Culture Collide. And you'll see why that's a fitting title as we talk about it. And I know that not all of you are familiar with Titus and what that's about. So let me give you a little bit of backstory here. It's a short book in the New Testament, only three chapters long. It was written as a letter from Paul to his friend Titus. And Titus was a, a Greek Christian. And most of the commentaries will agree that Titus would have been introduced to Jesus by Paul, making Paul more or less a mentor to Titus. They had been on several missionary journeys together, at least two that we know of. And in the opening verse of the letter, Paul tells us that Titus has been left behind on an island called Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean. It was then and it still is the largest of the Greek islands. And Greek mythology identifies Crete as the birthplace of Zeus. Now, there's a familiar name for you guys. You probably remember Zeus as the chief god in mythology, right? Well, they regarded him that way, but they also called him Zeus the seducer because they thought of him as cunning and shifty and manipulative. And when that's the God that you worship, you can imagine the kind of moral decay that it introduces into your culture. And so when you add all of this up about Crete, what you get is one of the earliest known pirate cultures. If you've got a picture in your head of a pirate culture, you're probably not far off. 
Cretans were known to be savage and selfish with each other, with an insatiable appetite for pleasure. They'd do whatever they wanted to whoever they wanted to satisfy that appetite. So why then would Paul leave a good friend like Titus behind in a place like that? Well, in verse 5, chapter 1, he tells us, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders. You see, Paul and Titus knew that there was a problem with the church in Crete. And Paul spends about seven verses in chapter one talking about it, spelling it out. He called the Christians there lazy and dishonest and dangerous. And basically, when their faith and their culture collided, they became more like their culture and less like their king. And that was a problem. And that becomes the the context, the epicenter for the entire book of Titus. Paul begins chapter two with a really important statement. He says, you, however, the literal Greek translates into four words, but as for you and those four words, they're the heartbeat of what I want to talk about today. What Paul is saying to Titus is this. If we want to be God's church, if we want to be a church that makes a difference in the world, then there are some things that have to be different about our lives. Paul is writing This letter to a group of church people who did not have it all together. Hopefully, it doesn't take very much for us to realize that we fit pretty well in that category. But Paul and Titus knew that even though these churches were dysfunctional, that they were meant to make a difference in the world. And so the application for us is this. If we want to be God's church and make a difference in the world, then we've got to acknowledge two important things realities. We're going to talk about chapters one and two. I'll make two points and then give you a summarizing thought. That's where we're going today. But here are the two important realities. Something has to begin here before it can begin out there. That's the first one. And the second is making a difference by definition means doing some things differently. Let's take a look at that first one. If we want something to begin out there, then it's got to begin in here first. Consider what the letter was meant to do. It was written for the purpose of helping appoint people who would be God's representatives in Crete, people who would demonstrate what abundant life and kindness and joy and hope looked like. People whose lives were different because they had a relationship with Jesus. And then Paul gets very specific with a few groups of people And the way he tees it up is almost is the same almost each time. He says it this way. Teach the older men to be. Likewise, teach the older women to be. Similarly, encourage the younger men to be. Before he ever talks about what they are to do, he emphasizes who they are to be. Because something has to begin here before it can begin out there. This is not a new idea. Paul didn't create this. The writer of Proverbs thought of it long before he did. He said, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Have you ever thought about that? Ever thought about that? Everything we do flows from our heart. We may not want to think about that. We probably don't want our actions to say anything about what's in our heart, but it does. They do. When I'm driving in traffic, I don't want my actions to say anything about my heart, but they do. 
Unfortunately, St. Augustine said it like this. Love God and do whatever you please. Now that sounds great, but what does he mean by it? He means that when we truly love God, that our actions and our words will reflect that. And this was the problem in Crete. There were people there who were saying they loved God, but their actions, their behaviors, they said otherwise. And they were losing credibility in their community. If, you, if you've ever wondered why people don't trust God, unfortunately, it's because they don't find God's people trustworthy. Gandhi once said it like this, your Jesus I like, but not your Christians. Why is it that your Christians are so unlike their Christ? And that's why Paul starts talking about being before doing. If we'll focus on our hearts, on our inner lives, then the things we say and do, they'll take care of themselves. Love God and do whatever you please. You see, a heart that is compelled inwardly by love for God will express itself outwardly in ways that confirm it has been reborn by God. So how do we do it? How do we cultivate this kind of inner life? Well, let me, let me answer it with an analogy. How many of you have ever bought a plant for your house or your yard? Anybody ever done that? So a few of you. When you do that, you usually will find a tag like this in the plant, right? Something like this. It tells you exactly what the plant needs, how much water, how much sunlight the plant needs, how much fertilizer the plant needs. It basically will tell you everything you need to know to help that plant thrive, not just survive, but thrive. Now, if I'm being, if I'm being fair here, plants, they don't live as long at my house as they could if I took the time to read these tags. I'm just saying, maybe that's a me problem and you don't have any issues with it, but they do okay. They do okay. They hang on for a while, but they don't live their best life, right? Like what I'm saying is plants survive at my house more than they thrive. And unfortunately, I think that that's the life that so many Christians are settling for. I don't know if you know this, but we also came with a tag. We came with some instructions. God wrote it specifically for us so that we would know what it means to thrive. But some of us are settling for just surviving because we don't take the time to read or understand the tag. David knew this about God's word, and he said it like this. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So, so just like a plant needs three things, it needs water, it needs sunlight, it needs fertilizer. We also need three things. We need God's word. We need worship and we need prayer. And I, I know that probably sounds like a huge oversimplification. So let me explain what I mean. We need these things in different ways, but they, they all do the same thing. They create a meeting space between heaven and earth. They create space for us to be with God and we need them privately. We need times of private worship and private prayer and private 
study of God's word, but we also need them corporately. We need them in settings like this. We need to collectively worship and pray and and study God's word. And when we don't, we're missing an essential part of our spiritual health. We miss out on something we were made for. And the reality is we don't thrive. We never will thrive when we don't do these things among God's people. The good news, though, is that we're only four words away from change. But as for you. That's what Paul was talking about. That's what he was talking about. And that becomes the line in the sand where we say, I will stop settling for surviving. I will move towards God, even if the culture around me is moving away from him. I will consider the tag, the instructions that I came with. And I will let him cultivate something in me that will make me thrive. So if God's church is going to make a difference in the world today, then something has to begin here before it will begin out there. And the other thing we have to recognize is that making a difference by definition means we got to do some things differently. If you want to make a difference in any situation, it will almost always require that you do something different. Paul frames up this idea in chapter two with some very specific instructions for five groups of people. He talks to older men, then older women, then Younger women, then younger men, then servants. And I can't talk about all of them today. We don't have time. I might hit them in some of our morning encouragements. But today I'm going to focus on a couple. And what's interesting about what Paul does here is he creates a unique list of characteristics that ought to apply to each group, that ought to define their lives. And he creates those lists with the culture in mind. Like we talked about earlier, Crete was full of moral Decay. It was a culture that was moving away from God. And Paul uses that to create a contrast of what ought to be true about God's people. For example, I'll give you an example. Paul knew. He knew that the older men of Crete were in bad shape. He knew that they were. Back to the notes here. He knew that they were hot tempered. He knew that they lacked integrity. He knew that they were dishonest, they were indulgent, and they didn't understand the love of God. So what does he tell the older men of God's church to do? He says, exercise self-control, be worthy of respect and live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Paul knew, he knew that if the men of God wanted to have an impact on the men of Crete, then they would have to live differently than the culture. He knew that. And he knew the same about the women there, the older women. He knew the older women of Crete to be boozy gossips. Just saying, that's what he knew. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. I got some on my row right now. Don't look. It's a bad time for eye contact. Just don't do it. So he tells Titus to encourage them. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach what is good. Paul knows that if the older women of Crete are like this, then the younger, I mean, then the older women of God are going to have to demonstrate a different kind of life. One that protects others, one whose lives instruct others. And then Paul takes it a step further, encouraging these older women to demonstrate something different for the younger women among them. 
He says, these older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children and to live wisely and to be pure and to work in their homes and to do good and to be submissive to their husbands. And now we've stepped in it. Listen, I can't do justice to the text and not deal with some of these passages. And I know that these verses rub women the wrong way sometimes, but let me just take a minute here. Because if you take a look at what's really here, you might be surprised. So Paul talks about this idea more. It's not the first time he says this. He talks about it more in a different book, in the book of Ephesians. And it's important to recognize that before he says anything about about, uh, wives submitting to their husbands, that's chapter 5, verse 22. He says this in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the verse that came first. That's the bedrock of what he's talking about. So if you're a husband that insists your wife submit to you without you first submitting to her, then you've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole thing. I'm not done. I'm not done. Paul repeatedly tells us that men were supposed to lead in their homes the way that Jesus loved the church. And that means that husbands, we are to lead in sacrifice. We are to lead in mercy. We are to lead in kindness. We are to lead in forgiveness. And if that's not who you've been, then consider today a great opportunity to go home and ask your wife for forgiveness. But back to the verse in Titus where Paul says what he does. Here's a place where the original Greek can be really helpful. The phrase be submissive to their husbands. It's taken from the Greek word philandros from which we get the Greek word philos from which we just get the idea of brotherly love, basic love. So with a literal translation here is love your husbands. Paul is encouraging these younger women to show love through a demonstration of kindness, support, respect, affection, because that was a contrast to what was going on in Crete. It's also important to understand this. Ancient Jewish culture was an honor culture. So this idea of submitting to one another, it was not at all weird for them. It was very common. To us, it's not as familiar. So it it catches us off guard. It even rubs us the wrong way a little bit. But you've got to consider the original context in which this was written. You can't read it through our cultural lens. But this idea, put all that aside for a second, this idea of deferring to one another of putting each other first. That's just the basic price of entry for any husband and any wife in any marriage. It ought to be what we're about. It's our way of mirroring the love that Jesus showed to us. Paul sets up the entire chapter with this contrast in mind. If the people of Crete live this way, then I want you to live this way. I want you to do something different because if we want to make a difference, If we want our lives to reflect God's love to the world we live in, then we're going to have to do some things differently from the culture around us. What I'm saying is this, when our faith and our culture collide, we will choose to be more like our king and less like our culture. Now, let me share with you. This is a cool story. Let me share with you. Something that happened about a hundred years later, late second century, early third century. There were these 
terrible urban plagues that ripped through Greco-Roman society. I realize it's probably far too soon for this story, given where we are. But so this would happen. And the response of the civic leaders in that time would just be to move the city. We're all sick in this area. Let's move the city. So in in fact, archaeological research will show that cities often moved maybe a mile or two at a time to get away from a plague. So as, as this would happen, everyone would just kind of move out, leaving the sick behind in a quarantine slum. And so during that time, there was this guy named Tertullian. He wasn't a Christian. He was a lawyer. As I say that, I realize you can be both. Just putting it out there. But he saw something during that time that totally messed with his head, completely messed with him. And it was the thing that changed his life ultimately. As he observed how Christians cared for the sick during these plagues, he wrote, Most Christians during the plagues showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and only thinking of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And many departed their lives supremely happy. They were infected by their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pains. So many of them, in nursing and caring for others, transferred their deaths to themselves and died in their stead. While everyone else was moving out and relocating the city, the people of God were moving in to take care of the sick. Where do you think they got that idea? What made Christians so willing to put themselves at risk to save others, to care for others at their own peril? Well, Paul wrote about it in another letter. He said this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus is where they got the idea. He demonstrated it for him. He modeled it because the love of God had changed them. They were willing to do some things differently. So if we want to be God's church and make a difference in this world, then something has got to begin in here before it'll ever begin out there. And we've got to be willing to do some things differently from the culture around us. Incidentally, every year about this time, we do something Uh, called Legacy Weekend. And we are all about to have this opportunity to do something different. It's a weekend where we highlight the different ministries and initiatives that are going on here at Seacoast, the ways that we're making an impact. And we invite you guys to get involved. We invite you to do something different with what God has given you and to be generous. Now, notice I didn't say give money. Anybody can give money. People have all kinds of reasons for giving money. I said be generous because generosity reflects something that's going on in here. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to talk to God about it. You'll hear more about it in two weeks, but I just want you to start a conversation. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with what you have blessed me with? And then I just want you to do whatever he tells you. That's all. So like I said, in a couple of weeks, you'll hear more about it. I think they're Maybe even a slide that you can hit, hopefully not during the service, maybe after. (laughs) Um, But like I said, you'll hear more about it. I just want you to have an opportunity to start the conversation. So let me wrap it up. 
with one more story. This is something you can't, you can't go through Titus 1 and 2 and not deal with this. Remember, Titus was left behind on Crete by Paul. He was left on this island to put in order what was left unfinished, as Paul wrote it. I can only imagine that was difficult for him. He probably wanted to be with Paul. He wanted to be on the next big missionary journey to see the cool things that God was going to do. But here he was on Crete living among a bunch of pirates. That had to be hard. Trying to restore some order to the churches there. Well, here's where I think that some of us can relate to Titus. We find ourselves in a season of life that is not exactly what we want it to be. We're ready for what is next, but next is not coming fast enough. It could be the next job, the next promotion, the next relationship, the next chapter of health. It could be a number of things. Wherever we are, we're tired of the now. And we're ready for what is next. That's where I think Titus can help us. Because just like Titus, who was left behind on Crete, wherever you are now, God meant for you to make a difference there. I didn't didn't say that because I'm trying to minimize how difficult these seasons can be. I know they're very hard. I know the now can be very difficult. But I believe that God may be doing something in the now that's hard to see. And in Genesis chapter 50, we get an idea of how that plays out. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Joseph. He, had, he was one of 12 brothers, and his brothers didn't like him very much. They were jealous of him. And so at some point, they get so frustrated with him, they just decided, you know what? Let's get rid of him. Let's kill him. Thankfully, they decided against that and decided, well, let's just sell him instead. That'll be, that'll be better. So they did, and they took the money, but then they told their father they killed him. So his dad would grieve his lost son. Well, when he was sold, he was sent to Egypt, where he was made a servant in Pharaoh's house. And after a while of that, he worked his way up to the second highest position in Pharaoh's house. Sometime later, there was a famine, severe famine in Israel. And Joseph and his brother, or excuse me, Joseph's brothers and their families, they all had to leave Israel to go find food in Egypt. And so when they got there, who do you think they found? Joseph. Their long-lost brother they had sold off years ago, probably thinking this is not going to end well for us. But Joseph, instead of punishing them, decides to have mercy on them and says to them this, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. Now, that word intended in the Hebrew literally means to weave. So it's understandable why the translators chose intended here, because the original, uh, the literal text would read something like, what you wove together was for my harm, but what God wove together was for my good. And that would be a little more confusing if you didn't take time to really understand the picture behind those words. It's like a, it's like a woven tapestry that is a complete mess on one side and yet a beautifully ordered picture on the other. So while many of us may feel like our now is a total mess full of chaos, 
We don't realize that God is using it to weave together something beautiful on the other side. Wherever we are, God has purpose in it. And as much as he wants us, he wants to use that season for us to make a difference there. He is using that season to make a difference in us. It was true for Joseph. It was true for Titus. It's true for us. So about six weeks ago, Dana went to the doctor just for a normal checkup to do all the things. And so after the visit, they said those words that no woman wants to hear. It's a different four words. We found a lump. So she came home. We talked about it. We're obviously concerned, a little scared, frightened, frustrated, even a little bit angry. But we decided, you know what? We're not going to panic. We're going to pray. We're going to wait to see what we're facing. We're going to pray some more. Didn't mean we weren't scared. We just made a decision. We're not going to panic. So about five days later, she went back for another scan. This time I went with her. We walked in, checked in, and then they told us to have a seat in the hallway. And after a few minutes, they came back and they got her. And then I was there in the hospital hallway, just me and God. It's a lot of honest conversations that take place in hospital hallways. I know that some of you know that. It's probably... Only about 30 minutes, but it felt like hours. I would try to read or listen to some music, but my mind just kept wandering back to prayer. God, heal her. We don't want to do this. So she came out. I've known her for 30 years, but I've never seen this look on her face. She looked at me and she said, you're not going to believe this. They did the scans, but then the tech felt like they didn't get a good look at the area, so they did it again. They brought in a, another tech to look at it with them, and then they brought in a doctor to look at it with them, and then the doctor came to me, and he said, Miss Martin, I don't know how to tell you this, but whatever was there, it's not there now. So here's why I tell you this story. God did exactly what we asked him to do in Dana's body. He healed her powerfully, mercifully. But he did so much more in our hearts during that time. Sometimes the now can be really, really hard. But wherever you are, whatever the now is, God meant for you to make a difference there. And whatever the now is, God is using it to make a difference in you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that even though the, we walk through seasons that are scary, and frustrating, they're not what we want. You are doing something in those seasons, not just circumstantially, but on a heart level. That transforms us. And so we thank you. We say we trust you and help us, Lord, 
to truly believe that you are at work in our now. We believe in Jesus' name, amen. So for the next few minutes, I want to give you guys a chance just to consider a couple of questions. What is God saying to me and what do I want to do with that? For some of you, you may feel like you are surviving, not thriving, just surviving. You're ready for something new to begin here in your heart. Remember, just like that plant needs three things, we need three things. We need God's word. We need worship. We need prayer. We need them privately. We need them corporately. They all create a meeting space for us with God. Maybe for you, church has just kind of been one of those things that you do when it's convenient. You come once a month, twice a month, but you realize now that your heart needs more. Maybe for you, prayer has been one of those things that you do when you've got a minute, maybe on the way to work, when things slow down, but you realize that you're still longing for a conversation with God. Whatever it is, what do you need more of? What's next for you? I'd encourage you today, go to a cross, write it down on a piece of paper. But don't stop there. Write down the name of somebody who can help you do it. God, I need to, I need to be here more. I need to be in prayer more. I need to be in this conversation more. So what is it and who can help you with it? Write that down, pin it to the cross. For some of you, maybe you're tired of your now and you're ready for your next. Today would be a great opportunity for you to ask God to give you some clarity, some direction on what he's doing in your now. Go to, go to one of the candle stations, light a candle. Just ask God to bring you his light into your situation. To help you see what he is doing. And maybe there's somebody you need to invite into that with you. You're not walking through that season alone anymore. Ask him to show you that as well. Also, as a part of response, I want to invite you to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of Seacoast, just somebody who surrendered their life to God. Come and give thanks for a body that was broken and blood that was shed that we might be free. And maybe, maybe you're carrying something heavy in this now season of your life. I'd invite you to come to someone on our prayer team. They'll be here during response time. They would love to carry this with you in prayer. And then finally, let's be willing to give generously to the one who, as Paul said, loved us and gave himself up for us, who demonstrated generosity through his kindness towards us. Let's respond together.